Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Last night, I drank far too much, wrote the Deputy Chief Whip, Christopher Pincher, in his resignation letter on the 30th of June, 2022. I've embarrassed myself and other people, which is the last thing I want to do. That memorable note, written precisely halfway through 2022, triggered one of the most tumultuous periods in British political history. Dozens of resignations from government, the downfall of a once all-powerful Prime Minister, a grippingly bloody Tory leadership contest, a truly disastrous 49-day premiership. A book is being written about the Prime Minister's time in office. (laughs) Apparently it's going to be out by Christmas. Is that the release date or the title? (laughs) Complete with the death of the monarch, a reckless mini-budget, a self-inflicted financial crisis, multiple cabinet sackings and a chaotic Commons rebellion for the ages. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. And after that, another Downing Street resignation, another swifter leadership contest and another new Prime Minister and still time for another emergency budget and still another cabinet resignation. Just literally in the past few moments, a tweet has gone out. Does anyone still remember Gavin Williamson? Sir Gavin Williamson and the bullying allegations, we now understand that he has resigned. All of that before the end of the year. And all of that in a year which had brought us already another major economic crisis, brought on by a global energy meltdown, brought on in turn by the first major land war in Europe since 1945. But you know all that. You don't need me to relive the highs and the lows of UK politics in 2022. The ambushes with cake, the camel's penis, the charge of the lightweight brigade, and of course, the Daily Star lettuce. You, they, we lived and breathed every chaotic twist and turn, And we couldn't take our eyes off it for a moment. So instead of revelling nostalgically in the glories of 2022, Westminster Insider is going to get you ahead this week on what will undoubtedly be the calm, pleasant, sunlit uplands of 2023. 
Which are the political stories you should be watching out for in the coming year? Which are the big moments in the 2023 calendar where things are likely to start blowing up again? Who will be the movers and the shakers, the fighters and the quitters? Who, in the end, will be left ruining that them's the breaks? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at the year ahead in politics and hoping, dreaming, praying that it will be a little bit calmer than the last. It's New Year's Day 2023, and as another year dawns, one big story will continue to occupy us all. The war in Ukraine, sky-high inflation, Britain's public services grinding one by one to a halt. Um, no. The sad truth is that in January 2023, everyone is still going to be talking about these two. Harry and Meghan, they are ultimately not particularly interesting. Documentary from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, what it says, the fallout. These two thorns in the side of the monarchy, piercing once more. Yeah, it's the latest in the barrage of abuse targeted at the royal couple, which we've been hearing about in their in detail from their Netflix docu-frenzy. I realised they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. Harry and Meghan's new Netflix documentary series, inspired, I shit you not, by Nelson Mandela, he'd be so proud, premieres on New Year's Eve, followed swiftly by Harry's much-anticipated autobiography on January the 10th. Harry has promised tell-all interviews ahead of publication day, with Anderson Cooper on CBS News in America, and with his old mate Tom Bradby of ITV here in the UK. And so we can expect Britain's most polarising celebrity duo to dominate the first days of the year. What a joy. But if that prospect doesn't fill you with New Year's cheer, then happily, we do at least still have the prospect of rocketing inflation to keep us distracted through the early months of 2023. In search of some optimism to kickstart the year, I asked Paul Johnson of the Institute for Fiscal Studies if we might see the rate of rising prices start to come down at some point in 2023. Yeah, inflation is almost certain to come down over the year. The Bank of England is expecting it to at least halve by the end of next year. So prices will still be rising, but rising by nothing like what we've seen this year. We wouldn't expect energy prices, for example, to rise any further and with any luck they'll fall. And of course, that will take the overall rate of inflation down, hopefully quite fast from the middle of 2023. And what are the implications of that for the economy and particularly for the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, as he's thinking about fiscal policy next year? Well, we've seen that high inflation is incredibly difficult for governments to manage. It's rather hidden from us, but the amount that we're spending on debt interest is huge because inflation is so high. It obviously also makes uh, public sector pay setting very difficult, as well as managing public sector spending more generally. So lower inflation helps all round. But let's assume that the strikes that are going on at the moment don't result in inflation matching or busting pay rises. Public sector pay, for example, will still be lower next year than it was last year. So that pressure for higher public pay settlements won't uh, won't go away entirely. So everything becomes easier 
when inflation is low. The Institute for Government's Giles Wilkes, a former Downing Street advisor on industrial strategy, agreed that high inflation and the resulting higher interest rates will continue to dominate the political agenda for much of 2023. This changes everything in economics. It changes the assessment the government has to make when it does fiscal policy because it's suddenly much more expensive. It changes every single business investment idea. The fact that inflation is going to last a bit longer this coming year is going to be the big negative surprise for people, as far as I can see, that people are going to say, oh, hopefully the gas price situation goes away, oil prices return to a normal time. And then they're going to look around and find that the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, and even the Bank of Japan are worrying about underlying inflation and are trying to kill it off and trying to have a really difficult debate about whether we should be still sticking to 2% or maybe going easier sooner because the pain is too much. They don't like being in a situation where they're imposing a recession on economies in order to achieve their inflation objectives. And the Bank of England within itself will be having an argument. There will be members of the Monetary Policy Committee saying, no, we need to be cutting, and others saying, no, we haven't killed it off yet. The fact high inflation will remain a thing for at least the early part of the year means, of course, that we should also have plenty more strikes to look forward today to. As workers begin a 48-hour wave of strike action that's expected to cause major disruption to... That is a national disgrace. This is going on strike is a badge of shame for this government. If he thinks it's right that pay demands of 19% are met, then he should say so. At the time I'm recording this podcast, on December 22nd, there are another raft of rail strikes planned for January further nurses' strikes being threatened and ballots underway for teachers, junior doctors and many more. And they don't seem to have an obvious strategy other than holding firm, refusing to talk. I asked Giles Wilkes' colleague at the Institute for Government, Jill Rutter, a former senior Treasury official, whether Rishi Sunak's government might be forced to change its approach in early 2023 and cut some deals. They seem to be digging in for the long haul, though there does seem to be a bit of kicking it onto the next year's pay review boards, which actually leads to a rather odd position that you would be giving bigger public sector wage increases just as inflation is coming down, which actually you know, would make sense in one level, but also would look very odd because actually then you might get people in the private sector looking and saying, well, they're getting these quite big numbers now in the public sector. I would have thought, the government actually would do better to do things now. Now, a winter of labour shortages, strikes and high inflation do not sound like the ideal recipe for a Prime Minister to be heading into the new year with, and especially not a PM whose party are already miles behind in the polls. I asked the Ipsos pollster, Kieran Pedley, about the current state of play for the Tories as we head into 2023. If you look at our polling... Um, our most recent, we start at the end, our most recent headline voting intention has the Labour Party on 49 uh, and the Conservatives on 23, with the Lib Dems on 13, Greens on 3, Reform on 2, uh, and then some others making up the numbers. Um, the first thing I'm always keen to stress is that we are one of many pollsters. Um, you know, there are different views out there of individual parties, Reform being one of them. Um, but I think the general picture with, with whichever pollster you look at is of Labour with a sizeable lead you know, around the 20 point mark. And of course, whilst a general election can't be described as around the corner, um, time is running out for the new Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives to turn that around. The Reform Party was once Nigel Farage's party and who knows, maybe again. We have seen the odd poll suggesting that they really are 
in a position to start causing Rishi Sunak a problem next year. Um, have you seen any evidence of that? Could we see the third coming of Nigel Farage? So I should stress that we haven't seen that as strongly as some others. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, no, we're, we're categorically right and the others are categorically wrong. That's not the way I like to do business. Um, but I think that there is a there is a sort of discrepancy between different pollsters and the level of support for reform, which we should bear in mind. Um, part of that can be explained by sort of some nerdy uh, sort of polling uh, methodology things around sort of how different parties are prompted for or not in how questions are asked. So we have the reform party on two percent, but I'm I'm very aware that others have have them closer to ten percent. Um, what I would say to sort of defend our own sort of numbers a little bit is that I've not seen them yet get big numbers in by-elections or sort of real-world votes. I kind of want to see that as well personally before I believe that they're going to get double digits in a in a general election. But they are a potential threat because that 2019 voting coalition, that Brexit voting coalition, is concerned about borders and immigration and they're not happy with how the Conservatives are handling it. So, you know, could we see the third coming of Nigel Farage? Yes, the conditions are there, um, but personally I'd want to see a little bit more real-world evidence before, um, before I believe it. Now normally when, or historically when new Prime Ministers come in, Kieran, they tend to have a polling bounce, but that doesn't seem to be happening with Rishi Sunak, is that correct? Yeah, we certainly haven't really seen that yet. It's quite hard to know whether that bounce back will happen, as sometimes does when you change leader, or whether the Liz Truss episode has con- con- permanently tarnished um, the Conservative brand. Having said that, what I would stress is that Rishi Sunak's personal poll ratings are far superior to Liz Truss's, or at least where they were before she left office. Um, and in fact, last month, we had Rishi Sunak narrowly preferred as the most capable Prime Minister between him and Keir Starmer. So time will tell, I suppose, as to whether Rishi Sunak can use the what I would say is moderate, moderate goodwill towards him. I wouldn't exaggerate it. But whether he can utilise some of that moderate goodwill um, to try and turn the Conservative brand around because he's going to need to do that, I think, to be competitive at the next election. You sometimes see people say things like the the sort of which party are you going to vote for question is almost less important in predicting a, a, a who's going to win election than those questions about who makes the best leader, who's stronger on the economy. Questions that Rishi Sunak seems to be doing better than his party on. Does that Can he take some heart from that? Does that mean that, that they're in a better place than we might realise, do you think? So I think I think he can take some heart from that because ultimately any, any the numbers I mean to be to be blunt about it the numbers are so bad for the Conservatives at the moment not just in voting intention but in some of the underlying issues our, our Epsos Issues Index tracks every month what issues are most important to the public and we tend to find the economy the cost of living are the most important with public services and immigration also important but just to throw some numbers at you on the cost of living Labour are more trusted than the Tories by a margin of. 37 points to 19 and on growing the economy um, the two parties are actually neck and neck but that reverses a long-standing trend where the Conservatives have had double-digit leads and on public services it won't be a surprise that you know, Labour lead on who's seen as more trusted to deal with the NHS so there are a lot of meaty issues that matter to the public that the Conservatives are behind on. The Spectator's Katie Balls told us that if Rishi Sunak can conjure up some policy wins in some of these key areas in 2023 then things might start to look very different. 
could Rishi Sunak have a better year than people expect? All I would say is expectations are so low right now for the Tories. Now, there are some who think the Tory lead will plummet further, perhaps a party that reform is going to take votes on the right, totally possible. But I think Rishi Sunak will try to move from just firefighting to getting on the front foot. If he can land a few, I suppose, policy wins on small boats, um, on moving things forward, on you know the uh, financial situation improving, and also just stopping the sense of despair in his party, he could, I think, if you could reduce that poll lead to about 10 points, everything would feel a lot different. But he has to somehow make two-thirds of his party believe they're not about to lose the next election. That is quite tricky. A British Prime Minister looking for early policy wins in 2023 might just find himself looking across the water, with the clock ticking for Britain and Europe to agree a deal on the dreaded Northern Ireland Protocol by early spring. Here's Politico's own Brexit expert, Christina Gallardo, who writes our weekly X-Files email on UK-EU relations. Um, There is a lot of expectation of a deal potentially in the early weeks of next year. People have been indicating that the ongoing talks between the European Union and the UK on over post-Brexit trade rules in Northern Ireland could yield some sort of consensus, um, perhaps by February, but everybody seems to be eyeing uh, for April because of the uh, 25th anniversary of the Wood Friday Belfast peace agreement. And just explain for my listeners why the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in April would be important in the uh, the post-Brexit negotiations. Because it's a very important date um, for peace in Northern Ireland and nobody wants to get to that point without an agreement. Also, there is this rumour that perhaps the US President Joe Biden might pay a visit to Europe um, to mark the occasion. So it would be really nice if um, all parts could move ahead from this very, very bitter row that had been um, blocking other issues in the EU-UK relationship for close to three years now. There are lots of things that had been blocked because of the toxic- toxicity of this uh, of this row and how um, lots of other EU countries lost trust on the UK government. And so I'm thinking um, in particular of things like uh, the UK participation in US schemes, such as the massive Horizon Europe program for research and development, um, which the UK very much wants to take part of. Um, and, and we are just waiting for the European Commission to sign off British participation. And everybody seems to think that once the Northern Ireland Protocol dispute is resolved, that would very soon afterwards be resolved as well. One of the stumbling blocks to a deal has often been seen as being the attitude of the French government who've often taken a relatively harder line with the UK than other EU nations but we've got a big Anglo-French summit to look forward to early next year haven't we? Yes we should see a bilateral summit taking place in Paris in the first quarter of the year most likely. Officials from both countries are currently working together on the agenda for the topics that um, they would like to discuss. And the French side, when I've been speaking to them, they've been uh, very clear that they want this summit to yield progress. So they don't want it to be just a talking shop. One of the other things that um, British voters particularly Conservative MPs, will be hoping that Rishi Sunak can uh, can come to agreement with Emmanuel Macron 
on is is doing more over um, over the small boats crossing the channels. Do you think we're likely to see progress on that this year? Yes, and the two governments are indeed speaking about reinforcing patrols. But the challenge is huge because we've seen an, a big, very big increase in the numbers of asylum seekers reaching France. So it is not just whether the France is doing enough. The question is how many more people are going to reach that northern coast and whether it is uh, feasible for them to, to stop the boats. So Rishi Sunak might just find himself reliant on Emmanuel Macron, of all people, for some of the momentum he needs in early 2023. Now, as the days start to lengthen and we move into spring, one of the centrepiece moments of the political year will come on March the 15th, when Sunak's Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, unveils his first proper budget, assuming he hasn't been reshuffled out of the Cabinet by then, of course. Here's Paul Johnson of the IFS on what we can expect. I don't think public services will be cut next year, not least because it's incredibly hard to see how they could be. What I think is possible is that he will therefore feel that even more tax rises are necessary in order to cope with what is an extraordinary set of pressures on public services. It's a brave Conservative Chancellor who starts raising taxes a year out from an election. And then the other big decision he's got to make next year, I guess, is about his energy price support package and and how far he extends that and how far he can afford to extend that. Yeah, well, we've um, he's already, as it were, particularly the households, moved right back on the idea that we'll all be uh, keeping our average bills at two and a half thousand a year, moving up towards three thousand a year next year. Even that's very expensive. The hope, of course, is that energy bills come down of their own accord over the net over the next year. Gas prices have come down uh, fairly significantly. Um, and the hope as well is that people at least will get a bit used to having high energy costs. And so the high commodities prices, the high energy prices that we've suddenly seen lurch at us this year, essentially get baked in for good. And what, we're all just poorer people as a result, are we? Well, we absolutely are poorer uh, as a result. Um, And that's one of the things that's incredibly hard to manage for any politician is to admit, as it were, or to accept that we are poorer. Prior to the crisis, we spent a bit less than 2% of national income on energy. We're now spending more than 8% of national income on energy. That just makes us massively, massively poorer. And just to add to the misery of this podcast, unfortunately, the Bank of England is obviously predicting that 2023 will be a year of recession for the UK economy as well. How bad is that likely to get? The Bank of England really is very negative about the UK economy. I mean, they're much more pessimistic, even in the Office of Budget Responsibility. The bank, it's looking at a long recession, but not a particularly deep one. And it's a very different recession to at least some of those we've had in the past. They're not expecting big increases in unemployment, for example, um, which is good. But they are expecting this to be uh, something that affects nearly everybody. In other words, most of our incomes will be lower next year uh, than, than this. We're all we're all going to be in it together to some extent. Unlike the you know the recession I remember particularly vividly from the nineteen eighties when you had mass unemployment, but then a period when those who were well off were doing really very well indeed. It's much more likely that we're all going to be just a little bit more miserable next year rather than that we get a minority who are in long term unemployment. 
Oh, man, we're all just going to be a little bit more miserable. Come on, Paul, isn't there anything more upbeat we can say about the economy? After all, the country was literally falling off an economic cliff only a couple of months ago, with trusty old Liz Truss at the helm. Well, indeed. Well, I think the I think the Treasury and the Bank of England were really, really, really worried that we were in for something genuinely catastrophic. So, yeah, I think that, as you say, the um, the most jolly thing we can say is it could have been worse. So there you go. Console yourselves with the thought that things could have been a whole lot worse. And coming up in part two, we'll try to make it jollier, I promise. We'll be discussing Boris Johnson, which is always fun, and Russia and China, which perhaps are less so. And also considering Keir Starmer and his chances of staying 20 points ahead in the polls in 2023. Good luck, as they say, with that. See you after the break. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. While Rishi Sunak tries desperately to make 2023 the year that vaguely normal government returns to Britain, he risks being overshadowed, yet again, by his predecessor but one, a Tory Prime Minister who preferred chaos, cake and glitzy wallpaper to strong and stable administration. Tax cut for a decade. There should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. For the job of a prime minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. And that's what I'm going to do. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up. Divided, I thought they looked. Their leader like a seriously rattled bus conductor. The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. Yes, in 2023, Boris Johnson will be back in the news. And not just for earning big bucks making speeches in far-off lands from America to Singapore. Or as Boris privately refers to it, Kachingapore. First up will be the long-awaited parliamentary inquiry by the Privileges Committee into the Partygate scandal. An inquiry which could spell big problems for the Honourable Member for Uxbridge and South Ryslip. I asked the Institute for Government's Jill Rutter and Giles Wilkes 
what we can expect. I think it will, as with anything to do with Boris Johnson, still provide mm-hmm. sort of soap opera moments. Yeah. I and mean, one of the really interesting things is, do we actually get public testimony of some sort from some of the people who might feel a bit hard done by, by the leniency shown towards Boris Johnson, some of the people who feel they were dumped in it by him? Where does that go? Uh, we also have the spectre at the feast of Dominic Cummings making a comeback. Maybe, you know, he feels he needs to um, finish Boris Johnson off for good. Very interesting, of course, then, if any sanctions come out of the Privileges Committee, handling issue for Richie Sunak of what does he do about that? Because the Tories are split three ways, aren't they now? There's Trussites, Johnsonites and the, the residual Sunakites. And we can't pretend it's going to be a politics-free atmosphere. There's surely some kind of a bargain he'll want to strike with Johnson. says, you don't cause me any trouble and I try to make sure it doesn't cross the threshold of a 10-day suspension, at which point there needs to be a by-election at Bridge and the, the Labour candidate runs away with it. But, you know, maybe he's going to be the, the purer than pure um, prime minister who doesn't indulge in that kind of stuff. The, the other big inquiry we're expecting to start in 2023, although not finish, of course, is inquiry into the government's handling of the, the COVID pandemic. And yeah. once again, that will put the spotlight, of course, uh, Giles, on, on Boris Johnson yeah. and indeed on Dominic Cummings. Yeah, it, indeed. Although I think Dominic Cummings has got a well-rehearsed good story to tell. It's Johnson who's going to be in a lot more trouble because he was out there in public saying, you know, I, I still shake hands with everybody. And later, by all accounts, resisting terribly the second lockdown that we did desperately need as a still very deadly um, virus. And, and on that, interestingly, Rishi Sudan also, Jill, said to have strongly resisted further lockdown measures when he was in the Treasury. Yeah, I, I think Rishi, I mean, the interesting thing is Rishi Sunak is also in the frame in a way that Liz Truss wouldn't have been if she was still prime. So we're going to have that, and that obviously will be quite preoccupying. I think other people in the firing line will be Matt Hancock. Obviously, he's getting his defence in first with his book available for Christmas New Year presents if you want to spend Christmas New Year reading his so-called diaries. But I think it's also going to be very preoccupying and uncomfortable for a lot of civil servants and people, you know, people like the chief scientist, the chief medical officer, but also the UK Health and Security Agency, all of those organisations will come under the spotlight. And whereas someone like Boris Johnson might have the sort of bravura to cast it off, if you're an official who is used to working in the shadows, whose you know advice is suddenly being exposed to that sort of degree of scrutiny, I think that will uh, that will affect a lot of people. And we might find that you know particularly if there's other public health crisis to deal with that a lot of those sort of you know people are preoccupied attention elsewhere focused on the defenses there the thing is about the covid inquiry though is if past presence are anything to go by the results will take really quite a long time to come out you know hopefully everybody will actually approach this in a way it's probably impossible to ask in a way where it's genuinely saying these were very different times people were having to make life and death decisions under this condition massive duress we are hopelessly ill-prepared but what really can we learn about it we focus more about actually what can we learn about it than just whitehall version of the hunger games so where does all this leave the labor party miles ahead in the polls, with a barrage of further Tory misery apparently coming down the track. Is 2023 going to be one long victory party for Keir Starmer? Here's the FT's Stephen Bush. Don't forget that every single person in the Labour Party 
basically, worked on the 2015 general election campaign and was at the least alive in 1992. So they're haunted by these shock defeats. They're haunted by this idea and these fears about them and tax and immigration and the new perception that, you know, they're only ever one bad hair day away from going back to the bad old Corbett days will mean that at the last they're defeated. So everything they're going to do over the next year is going to be about reassurance. Here are our policies. Yes, the sums add up. Yes, we're not going to reopen the Brexit question. Don't worry, we're not going to do anything mad. And they will want to do that while avoiding getting into internal battles on their own left flank. And here's the Ipsos pollster, Kieran Pedley. One of the questions that we track over time is simply, do you agree or disagree that the Labour Party is ready to form the next government? And we also asked that about the Conservative Party when they were in opposition as well. So our latest figures have 47% of the public agreeing that Labour are ready to form an ex-government with 31% disagreeing. That 47% that agree is the highest level Labour have seen since they lost office in 2010. It's actually the same number that David Cameron registered, or David Cameron's Conservatives registered, I should say, shortly before um, winning that 2010 general election, or certainly formed a government after it. Depends on your interpretation of winning, I suppose. You've got uh, uh, people taking the Labour Party much more seriously than they previously did. Um, and under Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband, you were getting as many as 50, 60 percent disagreeing with that statement. So I think it's about that as much as necessarily the fact that Labour are ahead that could give Labour some confidence that there is something real going on here. They are in with a fighting chance next time. On, on, on um, Keir Starmer himself, I would say his, his personal poll ratings are sort of solid, but sort of unspectacular, I, w- I would say. What we're not seeing is the hostility to the prospect of Keir Starmer being Prime Minister, that for good or bad, Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband didn't have that benefit of a doubt. So um, Labour can go into 2023 feeling pretty optimistic, but by no means with the deal sealed yet. What's clear is that both parties will want to be going into their autumn conferences in strong shape, given they may well be the last party conferences before the next general election. Labour are back in Liverpool in September 2023, with the Tories in neighbouring Manchester the following week. But before all that, they each have a real-life electoral test to contend with, the all-important local elections in May. We have a four-yearly local election cycle, and this is what uh, any political analyst would regard as the big year. This is the Conservative peer and sophologist Robert Haywood in that there are more seats up across more of England than at any other point in the four years. The one notable exception in England is London, where there are no local elections. But outside London, virtually everywhere else across England has local elections. And in many cases, they're all outs, and therefore places will be choosing three councillors per ward. And that's what makes them so big is not only the geographical stretch, but also the sheer quantity of councillors that are being elected. These these elections work on a four-yearly cycle, so the, the parties will be trying to do better, I guess, essentially than they did four years ago. So give us an idea of where we were four years ago when these elections were last held. Four years ago, 2019, was a point at which the Conservatives were... And it sounds like a truism to say they were going into the mire. Um, they did badly in the local elections. They lost 1,200 seats, primarily to the Liberal Democrats and to others, i.e. residents, groups, Greens and the like. They lost to Labour as well, but not in such huge numbers. 
And this was the precursor to the complete conservative collapse at the European elections uh, and then the replacement of Theresa May by Boris Johnson. The judgment base will be that the Conservatives should markedly improve their position against 2019 and the Lib Dems start from reasonably high territory. Which particular parts of the country or particular councils will you be watching closely to give us an indication of where the country is at? Most importantly for the Conservatives will be the middle-class counties, the home home counties in particular, because the Conservative collapse last year, as against the Conservative collapse in 2019, uh, was across the board in terms of both Labour and Liberal Democrat target seats. Uh, and most of the very safe Conservative seats, what you would describe as blue wall, I hate the term, but the home counties, shires, the Hertfordshires, the Surreys, the Hampshires, m- nearly every single local authority in those areas as well as in Warwickshire and Cheshire will have seats up. So they will be the first group uh, which are most important for the base of the Conservative Party and the Conservative MPs. And will there also be what we call quote-unquote red wall seats up for grabs that will give us an indication of whether Rishi Sunak is managing to hold that end of the Tory coalition? There will be and there will be actually an abnormal number of uh, councillors up in those red wall seats because by chance a fair number of them have gone through rewarding. The boundaries, because of population shifts within local authorities, uh, have been changed and therefore all the councillors, normally in places like Bolton or Leeds or uh, Sandwell in the Midlands, you would only have one third of the seats up. Now in some of those local authorities in Greater Manchester, West Yorkshire uh, and in the West Midlands, because of redrawing of the boundaries of the council boundaries all the council seats will be up and does this then make may 2023 a, a point of political danger for rishi sunak would you say uh it, there's no question it does it's the first really big electoral judgment we have the odd by-election there are council by-elections every week six seven eight of them But across the country, there will be a judgment and people will be viewing the results very carefully, not only in their own constituencies, but also across the country in terms of a commentary on the performance of the government and also the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. So the Labour Party will have to show that they've made progress against 2019, as well as the Conservatives needing to do so. Any political fallout for Rishi Sunak from the local elections on May the 4th will, however, be restricted by the coronation of King Charles, which has been helpfully scheduled for May the 6th. Ain't life grand if you're the Prime Minister? Yes, even the most dismal possible Tory election results will be swept away on a tide of Union Jack bunting, pims-laden street parties and glorious pomp and ceremony, as Britain does what only Britain can before a global audience of billions watching on TV. We even get an extra bank holiday to boot. Roll on summer. But for Rishi Sunak, it will be back down to earth with a bump later in May, as he heads to Japan for what is likely to be a grave G7 leaders' summit. 
The symbolism of holding this year's meeting in Hiroshima will not be lost on anyone, with the threat of nuclear conflict having returned to the world in a big way in 2022. And of course, how the war in Ukraine plays out in 2023 could have an enormous impact on domestic politics all over the world. I asked the former UK Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, if he thinks there's any prospect of the war actually ending in 2023. Um, well, I hope next year, yes, uh, but it's certainly not going to be not going to be very quick. And um, the more successful the Ukrainians are, the more difficult it's going to be for them to concede anything in any kind of settlement that involves the surrender of any of their original territory, including Crimea. Uh, we will see whether Russia follows through and closes off, you know, the final gas pipelines to the west. But what has happened, of course, in the meantime, is is Europe. Um, has accelerated you know, some of its internal market reforms and has started to quite significantly reduce its dependence on gas, which might have taken 10 years, is now sort of taking two years. So it may well be that you know, if the war does drag on throughout uh, 23, that actually um, you know, Russia will start to lose its leverage. What's fascinating about the conflict in Ukraine, Fallon added, is that in the end the outcome may not be decided entirely upon the battlefield. Well, at the moment, this is a battle between Moscow and Washington. If Washington you know, does not continue the scale of its military help, and particularly the high-tech weapons that it's supplying, if that uh, you know, eases off or dries up, then clearly the Ukrainian forces are going to be in, in real difficulty. Ukraine holds its lines and will never surrender. And your support is crucial. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. From the midterms, you know, there's no sign at the moment that some of the isolationism that's growing in the states has yet spilt over into, into moves in Congress to actually cut off the supply. But the war is dependent on the supply of, uh, of weaponry from, from us, from Europe, but above all, from the United States. The astonishing resistance shown by Ukraine so far has taken pretty much the whole world by surprise. So should we feel optimistic about the war heading into 2023? I don't feel particularly optimistic. I see some fairly alarming signs of appeasement, you know, in Berlin and Paris at the moment, um, which, which does not uh, bode well. And you're always going to get, you know, the, the siren voices, even if they're not useful idiots, you're going to get siren voices saying somehow there's got to be a settlement or whatever. We were guarantors, by the way, not just the United States, but the United Kingdom was a guarantor of Ukraine's sovereignty when they gave up nuclear weapons um, in, in return for everybody respecting the sovereignty of their territory. We have an obligation, which um, so far I think the government's been pretty good at, but you do occasionally start now to see signs of weakening of resolve in Berlin and Paris in particular. That worries me. Other parts of the world, too, have the potential to erupt in 2023, wreaking havoc on the best laid plans of Western leaders. Rishi Sunak warned only this week that we should all be keeping a close eye on the activities of Iran in the months ahead. Turkey has elections in 2023, amid further signs that the increasingly autocratic President Erdogan is cracking down on his political opponents. India, 
which is due to become the world's most populous country in 2023, and which will also host the G20 summit in September, has become embroiled in more skirmishes with China on its Himalayan border. And China itself, of course, remains on the brink of conflict with neighbouring Taiwan, which really would be the most disastrous scenario 2023 could conjure up. Here's Politico Europe's editor-in-chief, Jamil Andalini, who spent much of the past decade living in and reporting on China and Hong Kong. There's been another um, little skirmish on the high Himalayan border between China and India, and that, I think, is always very worrying when you have two nuclear-armed rising superpowers in Asia uh, actually coming to blows. Taiwan is obviously the most worrying, and if we did see China try to invade Taiwan, I think we could genuinely be in a World War III sort of scenario. I very much hope it's not going to happen. I still tend to think that um, Xi Jinping is not as mad as Putin yet. He's only been uh, in his sycophantic echo chamber for 10 years, whereas Putin's been there for 20 years. So um, I think Xi Jinping is heading towards uh, Putin levels of madness and um, and sort of out of touchness, but uh, but he's not there yet. And I think that I, I'm optimistic we're not going to see a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. If we did, it would be, you know, really terrible, put it that way. In the meantime, of course, China is currently dealing with what looks like a catastrophic new wave of COVID after finally unlocking the country. Something else which might have big implications for us here in the UK in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it's really, really worrying. I have actually family, my mother-in-law and other family members uh, who are living in China, and they've lived through three years of lockdowns on and off. And then we saw just a few weeks ago these astonishing protests against sort of government measures to contain COVID. And then it seems like Xi Jinping and the Communist Party have just decided like, oh, you want to protest? Well, here you go. Here's some COVID. And now the hospitals are filling up, the the crematoria are filling up, and we've got predictions of millions of old people are going to die. And it's, it's basically where the rest of the world was at the beginning of COVID. I mean, it's sort of astonishing to see it. So, I mean, you can't read this as anything other than a complete and utter failure of a totalitarian system with no real checks and balances. That's how I'd see it. And the implications of this are profound, I would say. Obviously, first and foremost, it looks like a humanitarian disaster could unfold in China, which is horrendous in its own right. But of course, the implications too for, I guess, the global economy, um, for trade, and indeed for the stability of of Xi Jinping's own regime must be things that we should now be talking about as well. Absolutely. My Uh, assumption has always been, right, yeah, people don't like being locked up in their homes. And that's maybe not in the long term so good for social stability inside China. But granny and granddad dying, probably as a direct result of policy failures by the Communist Party, maybe a little worse for social stability in China. And the rest of the world should be very, very worried because with 1.4 billion people, the potential for mutations in a population that has no real herd immunity at all is great. So you might now see another wave of COVID coming back out of China, a new strain, a new exotic strain that could be more virulent once again. I mean, it's it's really sort of all around a terrible, terrible outcome. <sighs> so there you have it. More war, more poverty, and perhaps even more pestilence await us all 
in 2023. But cheer up, it's not going to be all bad news in the year ahead. There's at least half a chance, after all, that Donald Trump will face criminal charges over in the US, something that would surely warm the cockles of almost every heart on this side of the Atlantic. Hello, everyone. This is Donald Trump, hopefully your favourite president of all time, better than Lincoln, better than Washington. Liverpool hosts the Eurovision Song Contest in May, while in June, a newly rejuvenated men's England cricket team will host Australia in the Ashes. And with Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum at the helm, they might just bring home the famous urn. In August, the Lionesses will be headed in the opposite direction for the Women's Football World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And as European champions, they will fancy their chances of going all the way. And throughout the year, the royal family will keep delivering top-class entertainment for us all to complain about, whether in the form of stupid Netflix movies, fabulous pomp and ceremony, or just an extra day off to get drunk in early May. And while British politics itself might just be a little bit duller than it was in 2022, maybe that, too, in the end, is a reason to be cheerful. So Merry Christmas from us here at Politico Towers and a Happy New Year to you all. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, please follow us wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget you can go back and listen to past episodes from a truly glorious year in British politics, including my episode in June on the downfall of Boris Johnson seen through the lens of a Westminster Twitter storm, or Alva's memorable diary of a Tory conference meltdown back in October. My producer this week was Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. That's it now for season eight, but we'll be back in February with a whole new season of episodes and, excitingly, an additional new host joining the Westminster Insider team. So all the very best for the year ahead. We'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.